A few weeks ago, we began a conversation with Josh Butler about holy war in the Old Testament. And the big question on the table, I think whenever you interact with the violence of the Old Testament or the violence of the New Testament even, is how do you square what feels like such aggression, such violence, something that even feels wrong, how do you square that with the goodness that we see in Jesus, with the descriptions of love that we hear about the Father? How do you square what feels like overt violence, intense violence, and love? If you haven't read Josh's book, I would highly recommend it. If you want more information about this conversation and you want to go further in depth, then that is the place to go because he spends so much more time talking about the violence of the Old Testament and the goodness of Jesus, more time than we're able to spend. But in the conversation that we had with him, he gave us a few ideas or paradigm shifts that he finds helpful in, in reframing the way that we think about violence in the Old Testament and the goodness of God. And for the sake of summary, because you can go listen to the episode, maybe the biggest thing to understand or the biggest thing to change about the way we see it is how we see Israel. Because it's really easy when we're talking about holy war to envision Israel like a powerhouse. Like there's some kind of superpower who is invading this foreign land and conquering victims and small people groups and overthrowing them with this just like intense act of force and power. But that isn't true of Israel. Israel is not a powerhouse. They're not a group of sophisticated warriors with sophisticated technologies or sophisticated strategies. Instead, they are a group of former slaves who have spent their entire lives in oppression, under the heel of injustice. And instead of envisioning them as the conquering people who are actually wielding injustice for their own sake, they are the ones who are pushing against injustice and power. And even if we struggle to understand how violence is good or right, at least it changes the way we see God's interaction with them. Instead of him wielding power in unjust ways against victims, we see God fighting on behalf of victims who have suffered injustice. Now, for me, that's helpful. It's helpful to change the paradigm through which I see Israel and the violence of the Old Testament. But it does not answer all of the questions. And maybe the biggest question of all is, even if that's true, even if God is pushing against injustice, even if God is fighting on behalf of victims, even if he is pushing against power that has been used for the sake of oppression, why is it so violent? Why is it so drastic? You're listening to The People's Theology. My name is Johnny Morrison, and this is a podcast, if you've never listened before, that seeks to take conversations about culture and theology and deal with them like they matter. Because they do. And today we're continuing our conversation with Josh Butler about holy war, specifically wrestling with this question, which is, why are the orders that we see God giving the people of Israel, why do they feel and seem so drastic? Like, maybe it's legitimate to push against injustice, but why does it seem like God is calling for genocide? Full-fledged ethnic cleansing at certain moments. Why does it feel like the innocent are wrapped up in the crusade? Why does it feel like those who don't deserve to suffer 
or who have no part of the injustice, why does it, it seem like they also fall victim to the orders? Israel's going into the land. They are given some pretty drastic marching orders. They're told to utterly destroy them, uh, do not leave alive anything that breathes, show no mercy. And at first glance, that's today, like that can sound like genocide. Um, indeed, many critics of Christianity like use verses like that to, uh, you know, as kind of ammunition against the God of the, the Bible, you know. But I think that uh, there's three sort of paradigm shifts. You know, on the one hand, I don't want to try and get around them, but I do want to look more closely at them. And I think there's three paradigm shifts that can help us get kind of a firmer grip on what's going on there. Just like before, Josh has three big ideas that he thinks will help us reimagine what it is that's going on in the story. Three big paradigm shifts, to use the language that he likes. And they're simple on their surface, but they are very powerful for helping us reimagine what's going on. And the first one that he'll give us is a conversation about cities. What we're talking about when we talk about cities versus what the Old Testament is talking about when it refers to cities. The second one is all around the language that is used throughout the conquest. And the third one, which is maybe the most important, is, is Israel actually being asked to destroy, to utterly annihilate everything before them? Or is there something else that's being asked of them in those moments? And the first is to recognize that these commands take place in the context of cities in the Old Testament. And uh, cities back then, in this time in the ancient Near East, they were military cities. So uh, when you and I, when we hear of cities, we tend to think of civilian population centers, right? Like I live in Portland. I walk outside my front door. I see little kids playing across the street, I walk down the street and there's a school and a hospital. And I go the other way and there's like, you know, local businesses and restaurants. Cities today are where the bulk of the people live and where a lot of life takes place. Right. But in the ancient Near East, things were radically different. Uh, cities were small fortified military outposts that guarded kind of the roads and pathways up to where um, the people were. And so uh, archaeologists and, you know, Hebrew scholars and people focused on kind of the, the, this time period would say the word, the Hebrew word city, I-Y-R, year, um, actually, you know, like a city like Jericho and I, uh, Jericho is probably an estimated 200 soldiers or so. So kind of a small fortified military garrison that was populated um, only by, you know, the military and maybe there was a government outpost with an official, you know, a few officials or something to that effect, right? But it was not like a civilian um, population center. Paul Capon, who is a philosopher and scholar, writes in his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Quote, there is no archaeological evidence of a civilian population at Jericho. Given what we know about Canaanite life in the Bronze Age, Jericho was a military stronghold. In fact, Jericho guarded the travel routes from the Jordan Valley up to the population centers in the hill country. It was the first line of defense at the junction of three roads leading to Jerusalem, Bethel, and Ophar. This means that Israel's wars here were directed towards government and military installments. This is where the king, the army, and the priesthood resided. And 
And so, and sometimes we'll say, well, what about, you know, what about Rahab? And um, often in these, uh, you know, military outposts, they often had a hostel where outside foreigners would stay. And the reason they would stay there is so the military could keep an eye on them, right? And these uh, hostels were often also a tavern so that the soldiers could get, you know, beer at the end of the shift. And, and they were often run by a prostitute because, unfortunately, the soldiers often wanted more than just beer. Uh, but, so it makes sense that Rahab, the prostitute, you know, would be running the brothel. This is where the spies would sit, stay, so the military keep an eye on them. So what I actually find more striking is that Rahab and her family were the only civilians specifically mentioned in Canaan, um, in, in these cities that, that get knocked out, and their lives are actually spared. Um, so I, I look more kind of in the book at some of the surrounding details, but I think the big picture we should have here is that God is tearing down the Great Wall of China, like not demolishing Beijing, right? Like uh, Israel's knocking out the Pentagon, not New York City. Like these are uh, defensive installations and military engagements, um, not for kind of coming in and assassinating presidents and slaughtering civilians and everything else, which is I think the picture that a lot of people get when they're using language like genocidal slaughter and, you know, things of that nature. So this is super important. Because not only does it show up in this moment, we see it happening all throughout the Old Testament. And even into the New, that when God wields his power against something, there is a demarcation between an institution and a people. So even in the story of the Exodus, when we have these moments talking about the plagues, you can ask a similar question about why would God use such intense means? And yet there is always a demarcation between Egypt and Egyptians. This is an action that is intended to push against a system or an institution, not against its people. Uh, The second shift is to recognize that Israel was using what I like to call ancient trash talk. Um, Mm. And what I mean by that is in the ancient Near East, this was the way that people talk about war. You can look at literally like dozens of examples of people talking about their battles and everything. And what you'll see is they use this language that at first glance can sound genocidal to us. Like we entirely exterminated them from the face of the earth, wiped out, you know, wiped them off the planet. They'll never be seen again, that kind of language. Uh, But then a year later, you find that the same people that were supposedly wiped out are back again, strong as ever, beating you, (laughs) beating them. So uh, it's clear and obvious in context that this language is exaggerated war rhetoric. It's hyperbole. And so I like to compare it to something like, uh, let's say a basketball game, where at the end of the game, you know, let's say you're in the locker room and you hear the players talking and they're like, man, we annihilated them. We wiped the floor with them. They could not get a thing past us. They had nothing on us. Um, it was, we completely wiped them out, you know. And mm-hmm. at first glance, you'd hear it and go, oh, man, it sounds like the score must have been 120 to zero. Like if you take the language just purely like hyper literally. Um, but then you walk outside of the locker room and you look up the, the scoreboard and you realize, oh, it was 120 to 105, right? Like it was still a significant victory, drastic victory, but not as drastic as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe. And that's the way this rhetoric kind of functioned in the ancient world. You wouldn't say like, oh man, basketball players, why you got to be lying in the locker room, right? Like nobody looked at them as lying. They just recognized this is how we talk about war. And similarly in the Old Testament, I would say even if you didn't have that ancient Near Eastern context, 
um, that the Old Testament itself demands to be read this way. There's uh, really only two battles that this language gets used for. There's sort of four places, like one where God says, hey, go do this, two battles where they say they did it, and then one place where they look back and say, we done it, right? we did it. And so two battles in question, and um, in both of them, all you have to do is go a little further in the story, and you find that the same people who are supposedly wiped off the planet are back again, strong as ever, causing problems. Um, so just to give one quick example, uh, Joshua 9 to 12 is the biggest one. And in it, this is where all these 30-something kings of northern Canaan and of southern Canaan, like they all rally their forces and troops. And they go out, and their, their goal is to annihilate and destroy Israel. So it's depicted as a defensive battle. And Joshua calls upon God to help. And this is the famous story where the sun stands still, and God throws down hailstones in the enemy armies. And you, uh, you know, you get, and Israel wins, right? So at the end, Joshua's excited. And he's like, dude, we did it. We showed no mercy. We utterly destroyed them. We, took, we did not leave alive anything that breathes. And he just kept keeps going. He's like... Um, we took all the land of Canaan. We destroyed all the kings of Canaan. Basically saying, it's done. Game over. Promised land is ours. Canaan completed. You know, like, mm-hmm. And the, the, he's literally saying, like, we've completed the conquest. Canaan is ours. And the problem is, if we take that literally, is that we're still in Joshua 12. And all we have to do is keep going to Joshua 13 and 14 and all the way through into the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Uh, there's still books of the Bible and generations to go before it's actually completed. Um, if we read Joshua hyperliterally, the rest of the Old Testament just doesn't make sense. Um, Hebrew scholars recognize, you know, conservative, Bible-believing, Orthodox, you know, like Bible scholars uh, are, are quick to note that Israel is using here um, hyperbolic language, kind of ancient trash talk, exaggerated war rhetoric. Um, and that's how ancient Israel would have understood these texts. Uh, so I think, you know, as we look at interpreting scripture, one of the first things we have to do is ask, like, what genre of literature is this? And this is something we have looked at so much throughout this podcast and throughout the episodes with Josh. It's that if you want to understand what's actually happening in the biblical story, then you have to look at it in context to its larger narrative. What happens after the conquest? What happens after these things are declared? Because if the people group that we utterly annihilated are still around, well, then they were not utterly annihilated. Third shift I would advocate for is just going... Um, exactly. The primary language, you know, that's used is not kill the moths, drive them out. So, whereas the drastic marching orders are really rare, they really only show up a, a few times. The the primary language used with Israel for Canaan is driving them out. Uh, it shows up, I believe it's over 50 times um, in the Old Testament, Israel's to drive out Canaan. And there's strong emphases there, like the Lord drive out these nations from before you that are much bigger and stronger than you. And there's a strong emphasis in a lot of these passages on the power dynamic. They're, they're much bigger and stronger, but God's the one who's going to do it. Like God is the primary agent accomplishing this eviction. So the picture, I think kind of like that, uh, the rowdy dancer who gets bounced from the club, you know, like, mm-hmm. the bad news is you got booted, you know, you got evicted. 
kicked out, but the good news is you're still alive. And I think that's more of the picture that we should have in mind here. God is sort of evicting the hooligans from his garden who've been sort of trashing the promised land for way too long and handing it over to this nation of weak and wandering homeless slaves. And with that in place, too, I, I think it's interesting, this language of driving them out, it's not the first time that it shows up in the biblical story. And so if we zoom out, uh, you know, the first place it shows up is actually in the garden with Adam and Eve. When they sort of unleash the destructive power of sin in the garden, God drives God exiles them from Eden. So it's that language of exile, of banishment. I think there's a similar picture here. Uh, the powers in Canaan have been unleashing the destructive power of sin in the garden, the promised land. And so now God is sort of driving the ruffians out of his garden, out of his land, and, and handed it over to the last and the least and the weakest. And similarly, if we go move ahead in the story for Israel, she's not exempt or immune from this happening. Like uh, the end of the story is where, or later in, in the Old Testament is where, Israel herself becomes as corrupt and idolatrous and unjust as Canaan ever was. And so Israel herself is driven out of the land. Uh, God drives her into exile through Babylon. And so it's the same language, same imagery. And I think that is really the dominant picture that we should have in mind when we think about what's going on with um, Israel and Canaan. That it's not, uh, I don't think it fits the categories of holy war as we tend to think of it, you know. Yeah. And I also don't think it fits the um, language of genocide and slaughter and things like that. It's actually, I, I argue in the book that Israel is actually raising the bar mm-hmm. on ancient warfare practice, like extremely so, um, and even raises the bar on modern warfare practice. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, maybe, but it actually um, totally. is more humane than much of 20th century modern warfare has been. The final thing that Josh is talking about here isn't really a paradigm shift. It is actually just reading the text accurately, reading it for what it is, which is not a command to destroy. It is a command to drive, to push out. And that changes things. Because again, if what we said earlier is true, then the command is about pushing out identity and institutions and systems. It is about pushing on Canaan as a nation, not Canaanites, it's people groups. And this you see playing out also in the Old Testament, that often peace treaties are made with peoples, and space is made for peoples. And this maybe gets to the most important thing that we always have to understand about anything that we see playing out in the biblical story. It's that there is always, maybe you could say, a theological intention behind things, a larger and more divine intention. It is not simply about providing a home for people because Israel's life purpose is not simply to be a nation. Instead, if we look at the biblical story and we look at the inception of Israel and why they're called into existence and why they exist as a people group, it is actually for the sake of other nations that God would make himself known to the rest of the world. And so we have to see the conquest as actually a part of that larger story about making himself known to the rest of the world and about Israel being a blessing to the rest of the world. And that seems confusing when you're like, well, how can they be engaging in conquest and yet also be a blessing? But it makes sense when you realize they are pushing against institutions and systems of injustice. And then at the very same time, inviting peoples individuals to know who God is and even to be a part of God's people which is what you see play out with Rahab 
She's not just left on her own. Instead, she becomes a part of the people of Israel. And not just any part, but like a really important part. Like a part of the genealogy of Jesus, important part. And again, that changes the way we think about holy war. Because in this story, it's not about destruction of people. It is actually about rescuing them and inviting them to be God's people. And so that changes it into a story of hope as opposed to a story of destruction. And that theme, that theme of hope, it continues with Holy War all the way through to the New Testament. I think the New Testament picks up kind of Holy War imagery from the Old Testament as a source of hope, saying, man, the day is coming where... God the Father will, you know, tear down, you know, destroy all dominion, authority, and power that stands opposed to uh, the, the the kingdom, the reign of Jesus, and um, will establish His kingdom in its place. The, the hope in Revelation is Babylon, sort of the symbol of all of our kind of imperial, economic, social, political attempts to rule the earth without God, and just the destruction that unleashes in its place to, to tear down Babylon and establishes kingdom in its place. And I think it's often hard for us in the West. A lot of places I found around the world, they look to these kind of passages and they find in them a great source of hope because it means, man, God's coming and he's going to set things right. And they're kind of living under the boot of real forces of injustice in our world. So when I work with our international partners in places like Cambodia and Rwanda, places that have experienced just some of the horrors of genocide in the last century, or partners who are on the ground working against sex trafficking in the world, and so these extreme these things might be more extreme, but they're seeing just kind of the darkest corners of evil's reign in our world. And there's this hope, like God's coming to deal with it, you know? And so I, I think it's a source of hope. And one of the reasons I think that we in the West have a hard time grappling with it is often because we tend to think like we're the good guy in the story, but we're actually like, we're sitting in the heights of Babylon, you know, like we're at the heights of the imperial powers that are seeking to rule the earth without God. And so there is kind of a confrontation that has for us in our particular kind of place of privilege and prestige and affluence and comfort and security in our society. There is a confrontation there and going, the God is coming. And that is actually a confrontation with the world that our society has helped build. Um, but on the same hand, I think as a, so if I put on my, American hat, like there's, there's, there's kind of a confrontation and that would be the same if I'm, you know, if I was in Kenya or China or Brazil or wherever around the world, uh, it, it confronts our societies and our attempt to rule the earth without God. But when I kind of take that off and I put on my member of the global body of Christ hat, I think it's a tremendous source of hope because it means that God hears the cries of the downtrodden. He hears the blood that cries up from the ground. He sees the rampant injustice and carnage in our world. And yes, he's being patient with our world, but it's good news that his patience will not last forever. He is coming to tear down Babylon and establish his kingdom. And now we're back to the question or predicament that I'm in from the end of the first episode, which is, what is truly good? Because as I sit in a position of power in the United States of America, part of me really resonates with a vision of the Old Testament God as one who is uninvolved in violence. 
uninvolved and using force to push against injustice. But I don't know if I feel that way because I am always in a position of power. And most likely that would mean that his pushes, that his use of power against institutions would affect me negatively. Because if I can do what Josh did and put on the hat of my global membership in the body of Jesus, and I think about my brothers and sisters all over the world who suffer injustice, what is it that they envision as hope? What is it that they need? What does it look like for God to be on their side? And is it the picture that I'm actually seeing in the Old Testament? A God who uses force to push against injustice. In that predicament, it also leads to a second question, which is if God is using force to fight for those who are on the wrong side of injustice, well, what does it mean for me? How should I think about my own role in the world? How should I think about the church's role in the world? How should I think about my use of power and specifically violence? Yeah, you know, I think one of the questions that can come up a lot today is, does this support uh, just war or pacifism? You know, like, is this, uh, does this Old Testament history lend itself to either one or the other? I think the reality is it can support either. You know, um, I, I, I personally, I land in the just war tradition, but I've learned a lot from pacifist authors. And what they will emphasize looking at this history is to go, you know, God is the primary one doing the eviction. God is the primary agent initiating the fighting carrying it out and all. And so our role, if anything, if we're actually going to look at that, like our role is to wait for God to initiate. And we don't see, you know, most of the, uh, the wars that we see today generally are, are initiated by people, not by God. And so uh, we're not to necessarily participate in the, uh, just the crazy destruction that war unleashes. Our role is to kind of wait upon God and to proactively through nonviolent means seek to embody the peaceableness of God's kingdom and we trust God ultimately to show up one day and deal with Babylon, right? I think one of the most helpful writers and thinkers on this conversation is an author by the name of Miroslav Volf. And in a somewhat extended quote that I'm going to read from him, I think he details what it is that Josh is getting at here just brilliantly. He writes, quote, My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. End quote. 
I think that this moment is made even more powerful by knowing that Miroslav is a pacifist who has actually lived through genocide. Whereas I think just war will look at it and go, yeah, there is, they'll agree saying there's a vast divide between these kind of wars in the Old Testament and, um, and, and warfare today. Uh, but what they do show us in the Old Testament is the kind of wars God's, God's fight. And so they might show us some principles um, that can help us. So as an example, that this is God arising on behalf of the weak and the downtrodden and the exploited. And so if we are to wage war today, it should be for defensive means to defend and protect those who are vulnerable um, or weak or at risk of outsiders aggressively raping and pillaging and exploiting. Government has uh, legitimacy say to, to defense, um, but not to aggression to conquer your neighbors and take their stuff and try to expand your orders and get their resources and those kind of things. So, um, so each side can kind of look at this. I don't think it answers the question there. I, I think it just helps, gives us some helpful categories to, to think about it through. And the reality is people often think of just war and pacifism sort of two polar ends on a spectrum. And I think the reality is that both just war and pacifism are actually much closer to each other than most people think of on the same side of the spectrum. If you think on one end of the spectrum, if you put sort of the rampant militarization that we have today all around the world, uh, you know, massive armament, like building up militaries, this is stuff that gets specifically and radically critiqued throughout the Old Testament for Israel. Um, and so if you think of like the rampant militarization and warfare and aggression and all that goes on in our world today, both just war and pacifism, I think, are on the other far end of the spectrum. One, at least when they're healthy, mature versions, the just war tradition is trying to restrain the excesses and injustices of how we often go about war in our world, you know, whereas the pacifist tradition is trying to uh, not to restrain, but to not participate in, you know, mm-hmm. and to find other creative ways of, um, yeah, of being Christ's people today. So, so I think actually both have a lot more in common and both can glean a lot from the Old Testament here. There are so many other places that we could flush this conversation out to. I think about this, especially in regards to recent conversations about gun violence and actions of gun violence in the United States, even showing up in a church. And so we could have a conversation about what does it look like to respond to what we're seeing in Scripture and the questions that are being asked here in those ways. And I think that's a legitimate conversation, and I hope to come to it in a later episode. But for now, I think we're going to end with what we have seen, which is that even though there's a ton of questions about what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live out, that if anything, we have seen that the Bible and its story of power force, and even violence, that it raises the bar on how we think about all of it. It raises the bar on how we think about God. It raises the bar on how we think about involving ourselves in conversations about injustice and most specifically in circumstances of injustice. And it raises the bar on on the questions that we begin to ask ourselves about violence in the world. And I think more than anything else, that's what I would hope would come from this episode. Not that I would have convinced you of one way or another of thinking about violence, but that instead you would start to have a really important conversation about violence, justice, injustice, the God of the Bible, and your own role in the world. 
that you would begin to see all different moments and interactions of the world around you through the lens of what we have talked about and raise the bar of what you ask of moments of violence and what you ask of of politicians or people who are proposing violence. And actually, I should say above even that, my biggest hope is that as you read your biblical story and you see moments of violence and coercive force, that instead of doubting the goodness of God, that what you would see at the bare minimum is a story of a good God who intervenes in the midst of injustice on behalf of victims, who always identifies with those who suffer, and whose hope is making all things right. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day Community in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast or the church or the things that we're doing, check out our website at missiouTah.com. And as always, if you would, share this episode with somebody you think is having these questions or trying to have these conversations. That's our biggest hope is that we could be a part of that. And if you would, go ahead and rate us on iTunes. It really helps get more people visibility to the show and get more listeners so they can engage in the same conversations. Thanks.